Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. Well, welcome back to Brazen Education. This is our first episode of 2023, and we hope Um, that you guys enjoy this conversation because I truly believe you're in for a treat. So the guest I have today is Justine Gonzalez. She is an educator, an author, the founder of Educator Aid. Um, And Mm -hmm. I asked her to be a guest on my show based on a conversation we had. Uh, Many times when I talk to Justine, she talks about being a third culture kid. And at first, when she was saying, I didn't really ask any follow-up questions. I would just let her talk. And then one day, I was like, what does that mean? Like, you keep, like, I think, like, I'm like a former English teacher, so I understand context clues. So I had a sense of what that meant. But when she really uh, uh, dove into, like, what that means, I'm like, there, this is a conversation that we need to have. And also, like, Justine isn't alone. She isn't the only person that's in that bucket. And then when I think about students, I feel that... When we talk about serving all of our learners, there's still mm-hmm. buckets that we don't talk about. And I think third culture kids, um, yeah. we don't talk about. And then those third culture kids grow up to be third culture adults. So what does that look like? And then now we're getting life. Help so, us. Help. Show. And <laughs> my first question is like, what is, is a third culture kid? Like explain it to us. So. The inter- okay, so here's the thing about this. First of all, I'm a super nerd. I, I love books. They've been so one of the things I always say jokingly, I've I just got the opportunity to buy my first home with my longtime partner, Thaddeus. And I was like, I can purge a lot of things. I will get rid of everything. But my 15 to 20 boxes of books are like my security blanket. But I'm saying that to say um, I'm currently researching and studying cultural psychology and cultural neuroscience. This has been not just um, I think and I didn't realize this until even I started my own business. Like this has actually been my life story, not just, oh, I'm passionate about culture and researching it. So now it's starting to come together. I'm grateful because I've um, met people like you, Shantae, along the way who were on this journey of trying to find out, you know, who are we? What's our identity? How do you marry that with different things? So all that to say, over my time of research, when I started first hearing that term, probably about five, six years ago, um, the, the actual definition, a lot of times when you look it up, goes all the way back to like, I want to say the 40s and 50s. And it was when you had a bunch of expats after World War II that were in different parts of the world um, all over the place. And so you had people who might have gotten married, like, for example, a person from Switzerland might have met somebody who was from Portugal. And then they're actually deployed someplace else, maybe in the Middle East somewhere. And so you're being raised in a totally different culture. So there's a very technical term when it comes to a third culture kid, but there's also a more evolved terminology too that if you look it up, and this is what I refer to with myself, and that is when, again, you're still being raised in kind of this new third culture, but both of your parents come from very different backgrounds, not not even necessarily race, 
but very different ethnic backgrounds, language, perhaps different skin tone as well. In my parents' situation, it was that way. But then also um, for me, it was, you know, Puerto Rican dad's side, Amish Mennonite mother's side. And then on, but then they created too, right? We had our own like, like, well, they, we were very in, in the church. (laughs) So then you have these, these Gonzalez kids popping up at First Baptist Church. Um, Like, so when I think of third culture kid, it's a little bit of all of it. And I think it's become more evolved and it's had to, because like you said, I am not an anomaly. I think I was a bit of an anomaly where I grew up and during the time I grew up there. Um, But I just think that there's more and more people with my story now, especially students in schools. So what I... I don't know how many people even know like the difference between Amish and Mennonite mm-hmm. and really what that is, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of times there's a lot of stereotypical like what that is. But we're like like right now I'm in Indiana and we know there's the oh. Amish community <laughs> in Indiana. You go places, you see people based on how they're dressed. You assume that they're Amish, but there's also like the Mennonite uh, community yep. as well. So could you explain to us a little bit about like w- I guess what has been your experience? Because just like any other group, we can't paint a broad brush. But no, no. Your community, your mom's community. Yeah. What was that yeah. like? Yeah. So I'll talk. I'll start with my mom's side because both sides are fascinating lineages. Um, lots of surprise stories as I've become a very amateur genealogist for my family, <laughs> um, but also just fascinating. Um, so a lot of the Amish movement actually was birthed out of Switzerland, what was originally Switzerland. And on that side, you saw the evolution of different religious trends. So the interesting thing, too, about the Amish tradition, it's very cultural, but it's technically a religion. So there's a lot of Amish even in the in the United States who they might speak Pennsylvania Dutch. But then when you go to church, it's the bishop is teaching in all German. Because that those are the origins, even before it was called Germany or Switzerland, those are the vast origins. And then on that side as well, a lot of my bloodlines go back to um, Ashkenazi Jew um, and different, those groups even extending into the Middle East. So there you see them, once you go back, right, you see the migration patterns. But long story short, my both of my grandparents on my mom's side, they were born and raised Amish their whole lives until they left when they were teenagers. Um, and many people may have seen that on shows or yes, Rumspringa is a thing. <laughs> so they left, they got married. So funny thing about my grandma, she is still living. Her name's Katie Troyer. Uh, but she is, she wanted to go. She grew up in different states throughout period, but I grew up in Northern Indiana. Um, and that is where they uh, eventually, my mom was born and raised in Northern Indiana. So anyways, she wanted to go to the big city of Indianapolis and my great grandpa would not allow her to Um, like she had dreams of going to college, which was very different for women in that time period. But she, um, she ended up staying put, she married my grandpa, but they left the church and then they slowly got out of then the Mennonite tradition as well. Um, But I very much grew up knowing about the history of that family And then just on that one side alone, and this is to kind of put you in the psychological mindset from the time you're born as a third culture kid, 
in the summers when we would visit or have big family reunions, you're going to one person's farmhouse with like 400 relatives and you know you're related to them. But you're also showing up and you're called English. So if you're not dressed Amish, you're called English. And so from even that time, and right, we're, we're, we're a lot of us are the same skin tone. But from that time, you're going someplace as a child and they want to know why my why our last name's Gonzalez. Like, and this is also because it's a very closed, it's a very closed um community. I I call it a cult. Um, a lot of my family members call it a cult. Uh, but there's also very, very beautiful things about the life that is lived in that way. Um you can ask me whatever questions you want, because even beyond Amish, there is what's called Beachy Amish. There's conservative Mennonite. There's Mennonite. There's there's a lot of different just like. Well, how does like the Mennonite come into play? Because you mentioned Amish. And I do know like if like if you were raised Amish and then you leave or you kind of are a, now. It's like a gradual English. release for our education yeah. folks. It's like gradual release of religion. <laughs> So like, where does like the Mennonite come into play with your family? So that happened. My great grandparents, I actually grew up with them a lot of my life. I was very fortunate. My great grandparents on my mom's side, they were always conservative Mennonite. So even after they left the Amish church and then my grandma and grandpa left the Amish church as teenagers from their families, like they, so they still wore coverings. Actually, there was a time period. My sister was practicing conservative Mennonite and she only wore, she wore coverings and she wore skirts when she was in undergrad in college. So there's a lot of that tradition because there's a verse. This is, and again, this is just my own personal opinion. It's not because I have a judgment against it, but there is some specific verses. And please, in the comments, if anybody sees this or knows otherwise, please correct me because I am not an expert on all things Mennonite. But when you see the, the bonnets or the coverings, whether it's Amish or Mennonite, there are certain guidelines I, I think it's more legalistic and rule bound, but the purpose of that for the covering is there's the verse about a woman should always be in worship. And so a woman's head should be covered during worship. So that is actually where that practice comes from. Mennonites, you can drive cars. Beachy Amish, you can drive black cars, not anything fancy or flashy. And then Amish, of course, you can't drive cars. <laughs> so then it becomes, right, these different things. So I think that's also been an interesting part of my story is just being okay to embrace. Like I do come from like a long line of disruptors on both sides of my family in a way, because there's been this consistent, like, Oh, let's, uh, I don't know if I agree with that. Let's evolve. Oh wait, let's evolve a little bit more and understand this. So yeah. So that's my mom's side. Uh, go ahead if, with the, any Amish questions, any medical <laughs> I will say, well, I, I an excellent cook and both sides of the family. My grandparents had a restaurant on my dad's side growing up. So I, I do have um, some good cooking skills from both sides. <laughs> and I, you said something really interesting about this disruptor because mm -hmm. you have. So I have friends who, based on the definition you share, they're definitely third culture kids. But is when some of their cases, the other parent kind of gave up their culture and assimilated to the others. So they don't do any of their practices, none of their lifestyle. They just kind of assimilated. Yep. And so I feel like there's a bit of disrupting that happens when you when you 
get kids or your family experience becomes like this third culture when you're like, okay, I kind of like a little bit of this and a little bit of your family and it all comes and meshes together. So with that being said, you also mentioned your other side is Puerto Rican. So how does that like enter into the chat as they say? <laughs> and like what what else? Yes. Because is it just Puerto Rican? Is there other? There's um, other. So there's yeah. also other. And let me explain this too, because I think this is a really great teaching point, especially for the times that we're in, because um, and and for you all know for everybody to know. I know you and I do a lot of similar work at times, um, Shantae, where we're doing cultural competence work with schools or organizations. We're doing um, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts or strategic planning, those types of things to help schools become more inclusive, to help nonprofits become more inclusive, those things. So one of the biggest things that I still hear is a lot of people, they still confuse race and ethnicity. So I'll start there. Um, oh, yes. And this is why I get now. Now you're seeing also why I get so passionate about like no, it is important to know these things. <laughs> but it's also I'll I'll give some stories too of growing up and then into adulthood because it is confusing. I mean, it is confusing for me. Like you're you you yeah. Anyways, but we'll get into that. So my grandpa came from the island to Chicago when he was 16. Did not speak English from Puerto Rico. And he was one of 26 children. Um, and so he came for better opportunities. And if you know anything about our, our tattered relationship and history with the United States, as well as like just how depleted the island was after the war, like World War II and stuff. And just the opportunities were very slim. So he came in the 50s. Um, a, lot of, a lot of Puerto Ricans at that time, if you were coming to Chicago, you actually settled on the near south side in Inglewood. Today you find um, Paseo Boricua, which is the predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood. And it's on the near west side of Chicago. But um, when he came, he met my grandma. And there was a bunch of questions, right, for years about my my dear grandma. <laughs> and so come to find out, and this is why I also researched my family, because when we grew up, it was just always Puerto Rican. My grandma had learned Spanish. She had already had a child at like 13 or 14, I believe. I think my grandpa had already had a child on the island, but they weren't. I don't even know, right? Like there's also so many things because both sides clearly didn't practice birth control methodologies. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> and actually, that is something about Amish. They don't believe in birth control. So like on both sides of my family, I have massive amount, like I'm talking thousands of cousins. Um, like just, I met, I went to a small university, a private university in Indiana, first generation college grad. Woohoo. I met two. There was only 3,000 people on campus. I met a second cousin from my mom's side. <laughs> met like we had been friends for a year and she was at the Amish reunion. And then I met a <laughs> on my dad's side. Anyways, so as I'm researching, what I found is my grandma, she was actually originally from Kentucky and she um, was part like she had a lot of Cherokee blood. So I found that in my lineage as well as a lot of Scottish blood. So then it just becomes this whole thing, right? You go down these trails because when you're growing up, my first encounters in school were, wait, I thought you're supposed to be short and brown. Like that's what my mom would get at parent conferences from my teachers. Mm -hmm. And until actually until sixth grade, we that's when you saw a huge influx. That's when a lot of the Latino migration from central 
um, America as well as Mexico began happening. Um, and there's stories about that too and, and where my teachers would seat me and how I would be seated with people to help them. And I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. So there's also like, there's so many things you toil with when you're constantly be questioned, you're, you're questioned why, why do you look the way you do? Why do you sound the way you do? Why is your last name this? Um, and you're constantly questioning like, well, wait, is there something wrong with me? Even though when you're, when I'm at home, it's just normal. Like it's normal to, to have my grandma on this side. Um, Velige, Hoktihana, that means let's go sit down in Dutch. <laughs> yes, that was said to me. And then hearing my grandpa, you know, with salsa music on and, you know, on the phone loud speaking in Spanish. So you, you, you just think that's normal, right? I think it's like anything, even if you, if you've been through trauma, if you've been through anything in your childhood, I think until you start to get a little older and you have more experiences, if you are afforded the opportunity to live elsewhere or branch out of the community where you were born and raised or your family unit, then you just, you don't know. You don't know because you think, well, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't really fit in anywhere. And so I think that that has given me a lot of clarity over time, but going back to race and ethnicity, one of the biggest problems already that I encountered like in elementary school by sixth grade was I had no idea what boxes I was supposed to check on the standardized mm -hmm. tests. So, and it wasn't even as detailed for the Latino population as it is now. Um, and that's the other thing, right? And I'll say this cause I'm part Latina. So Hispanic is just a coded way of saying anyone from that, like a Spanish speaking country where Spanish is the dominant language and ethnicity is like a group of people or an ethnic tribe. Race is a socio-political construct that was created to determine structure, class, and conflate it all with specifically the hierarchy being white to black and having a continuum of shades. So I became very interested in many, many things, like many matters related to not only social justice, but I was obsessed with reading as a kid. Um, we didn't have a lot of, of money to travel and stuff. So, and we would be at different families' house on both sides. Um, but then there was, I mean, clearly there was also tension. Like my dad, he's very, very dark in the summer. Like when he had hair, he had a fro. So like there was also that whole, my mom came from a very specific place in Northern Indiana and that was not kind or friendly, typically in that area to a person of color, whether they be black or Latino or any shade um, that is not white. So there was also a lot of just, I think, misunderstanding and maybe not appreciation sometimes for one another's culture and not because anything specific according to my mom or dad, um, but on top of the normal things that happen to us as humans, whether you're in marriages or have kids, it's that additional layer. It's an additional layer that for many, many years, I mean, it's still something like just if you go by the misnomer of interracial specifically, interracial marriages or relationships, it's still 10% or less of the entire human population. So, but that's also because there were laws in place, right? Like you, you couldn't literally the, the loving, um, I don't even remember. Yeah. That. It's the loving. Yeah. yeah. 
they but that was just in the late 60s and that's also why i get so passionate talking about current day issues regarding specifically systemic racism because i did grow up in a world with cousins literally of all races and shades and 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 it's still just jarring to hear in trainings when it's 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 a good thing because when somebody arrives at something and they're willing to say it out loud and admit it, it's great, but it's still always jarring when you hear a grown adult say, well, I've just never really been around blank, um, like black people or Latino people, specifically in the U.S., because there, there's a large population of both. And I'm speaking very specifically to some of our background and roots, but yeah. So- and yeah. I, always, I always, I also would say it's like an intentional thing because like in Indiana, we are one of the largest growing groups of multilingual people, learners, whatever you want to say. And so like you are now going out of your way, whether it is, oh, I'm not going to live in India. I'm going to live in the greater city of Indianapolis. You are not in Indy. Don't greater nothing. You are not in Indy. So you're moving out further and further, or you may put your kids in a school that you know is financially out of the reach of people that you are yeah. quote unquote afraid of. Um, yeah. And so kind of like, but there was something you said that really stood out to me. You talked about couldn't figure out which box to fit in. And just from the time I have known you, you, you weren't ever meant to fit in the box. First of all. <laughs> well, this, like this is, this is the whole thing. Like, and you know this about me too. Like I am like, okay, God, this is the classic little phrase what's the little catchphrase um man makes plans and god laughs <laughs> it's kind of like the okay justine you've tried hard enough to figure out oh wait how but but you also so here's the thing here's the blessing in all of it and this is what i am continuing to come to realize because even through my teaching career um, even going into, I was trained at a, a principal pipeline program, one of the best in the country that was founded at Harvard. I went into principalship having imposter syndrome terribly and because then I'm questioning, wait, are they just going for it because my last name's Gonzalez? Like, and then I'm always questioned, right? Like, and to this day, oh, are you married to a Mexican? That I get asked that question a lot. Like I'm being very candid because, well, it's brazen, you know, it's, it's the brazen podcast, but, but I'm, I'm telling the truth so that people realize like, this is not made up. And then there's the other reality. And what I've just started doing in my trainings a number of years ago is just starting by saying, you know, let's clear the air because so many people ask me questions and I want to be transparent. I'm a white passing Latina. Let's just put it out there. And also, I can't stand the term person of color because, yes, technically, I'm a person of color. And guess what? Technically, my soulmate, my partner in life, Thaddeus, he's a person of color. But guess what? For me, as a white passing woman, even though there's name bias I encounter, it is absolutely not the same. And I don't experience racism, but it's also not the same as the plight of my, my spouse, who is a black man in America. And so to, to, to just say, oh, we're both people of color. I, I think that's why these conversations are important. And I know, I do know, I know from the mistakes I've made, from my own misunderstandings, even about myself, I know how hard it is to even name and have those conversations. But it's also why 
the blessing in, in who I am is actually my superpower because it made me hyper aware from a young age of actually understanding typically when I go into rooms often how I may be perceived, excuse me, and to just be okay with, I can't, I can't change me. I'm just me. I, I can't, I mean, I could change my name. I've also had people who, um, I, I don't even remember what it was for Shantae, but I showed up to an interview once and somebody told me after the fact or on a panel or something, they, they, they were, they almost seemed disappointed, but also, but also they thought I was black because my first name was Justine. So I'm just, I'm just being very honest because I also know if you don't like, if you, I don't expect people to understand either, because if you don't have the name stuff, I also have many friends I've met over the years who they, they might look very similar to me or have similar skin tone, but they, and they're part Latina of some sort or Latino, but they have like, the dad is Irish, right? And they don't have the name. So then it's that whole other conundrum. So my heart also goes out to anyone. Like, it's just this conundrum of you then feel like, oh, I have to choose. But then when you go even deeper, that is why also I think we are headed into an era where we all know that we want to dismantle this construct of race. And it also still exists and is still incredibly harmful to so many systems and policies and how the world just works right now um, and how it functions and operates. Well, it doesn't work, but how it functions and operates right now. But I think that this is where we have to get more passionate about understanding who we are. And I think um, I'm going to butcher the quote, so I should look it up, but it's a Baldwin quote, a James Baldwin quote about what white people what white people don't understand about black people is precisely what they don't understand about themselves. And I think that's also the harm of even, yes, there is definitely white supremacy, but I also am seeing more and more, even in my trainings. Um, I just worked with actually a corporation, a business a chain of grocery stores about two weeks ago. And in their training, it was very fascinating because in schools, I've never had this happen, but in the corporate world, because this has also been a team that has done some DEI work together now for about three years. And we're going a little deeper. And I, this is my first time with them, though. They've worked with some other organizations. But they all, in, including the white people, right? Well, when I was growing up, this is what was important. And part of this is how I fashion and build the environment for my trainings to ask questions. But in their introductions, even while well, I grew up, my my father's my father was from Ireland and my grandma, my mom's side was from Austria. So I know I'm Irish and Austrian. But the other thing I want to put out there and name, it, especially if you are a white or white passing person or that is how you identify in skin tone right now, then understand that that is probably a more powerful way to connect with who you are because American isn't a race. It's not an ethnicity. Um, it's a nationality. Um, but that is also why I think there's a lot of searching happening. I see a lot of positive things happening with people wanting to know who they are. But I think the more that's also something I want to name, which is this for for white people to understand or white passing people. You, you are from somewhere and that matters 
and those lineages matter. And it's also, it's also an awareness to understand that that's a privilege if you are able to trace your lineage back. Because specifically for many African peoples in America who were enslaved, that's not, a, that's not necessarily a luxury that, that is afforded um, because of so many things taken. So I want to also point that out. Like that is even a privilege that I'm able. And that is one thing the Amish and Mennonite keep written history. There would be a text published every year, this thick Shantae. <laughs> lineage is all the way back well because you know that's that's what you spend your time doing <laughs> when i but, also think like it's important what you said because sometimes when like first of all when people don't understand the difference between ethnicity race nationality it's like so for example when um irene carr uh passed away the lady that was in flash dance and mm -hmm. people just couldn't figure out why sometimes she was playing a Latina. Sometimes she yep. appeared to be playing an African-American. And yeah. then you see yeah. her parents. And if I, if I have this right, her dad was black, but Puerto Rican. And her mom yeah. appeared white, but yeah. I believe it was Cuban. And mm -hmm. even that people couldn't, couldn't understand why yeah. her dad was like Afro-Puerto Rican. Yeah. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, People don't understand, like, if I'm born in America, <laughs> I'm American. And then it's, when I think about Langston Hughes, I, too, am yeah. America. Yes. Like, yeah. That's, like, why we want to dismantle this fake, yes. made-up hierarchy of race. Yeah. Because all, like, no one seems to have an issue. I want to say no one. Most people are less triggered by, like, the conversation of culture. So right now, people probably listen to you talk about Amish, Mennonite, nobody was triggered. You spoke in Dutch, nobody was triggered. But the moment we say like something like black or Latina, people are like, like they just get up. Off. <laughs> like they just get no, up all of Settle down. <laughs> right. But no, here's the, and this is why, like, I've been such an observer of people since I was young. Whether it was reading books or just what, like, I still love people watching at the airport when I travel. I love traveling, like, I love it. Um, and I love studying culture. I love experiencing new things, period. And one thing I'll tell you is, I also, I, I think, again, you just start, it doesn't, it doesn't have to define you, no matter what you find. It also doesn't have to define you. Cause the reality is, I literally have like, it's like, 10% of this, 10% of this, 10%. I literally have blood from 10 different areas of the world, much of it indigenous. So there's Cherokee, there's Taino. Like that's the other thing for Puerto Ricans. Many of us, even though there's such the colorism and racism that still exists. And for most of us, we have African, I African Taino, which is the indigenous people of Puerto Rico and Spanish blood. So you're also already, even if you're going around, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm Puerto Rican, or people go, well, I'm 50% this, I'm 30% this. We're just creating then the same thing in versus who am I? Who does God say I am for my own belief system? Who, what, what am I here to do? And how do I use this vessel, this body that I've been given regardless of how I, I, I feel, sound, look, act at times, how do I use this and what I've been given? Because that's the thing um, that also is heartbreaking sometimes in trainings. And I see it the most with white men in America is 
there is an there's such an embarrassment to even then also make that uh, make the admit uh, and I've seen it done, which is is great. But geez, even to admit and get to a point to say, you know, this is where I grew up and I was never around a blank person until I was 25. And usually it's a black person. Right. And I, so let me be specific because it's almost nine times out of 10. When you get to a place of vulnerability, it's incredible because right when we accept this is a lot of Carl Rogers theories. Um, he, he was a great psychiatrist, a psychologist. Um, he said, when I accept who I am, then I can change. And the problem I think for many of us who are born, our nationality is American. We haven't actually ever even accepted who we are, nor do we even know who we are. And so that's why I always also think back to that James Baldwin quote, because it's right. Like how, how would I ever attempt to build empathy for your plight in life, Shantae? If I don't even know, if right. I don't even know crap about myself or my own lineage, if I don't care about that with me, that's pretty hard to want to do that, whether it's for students or even people I love and care about, because that's the other reality. People I love and care about and people who, who loved and cared about each other, they didn't do those things. And they didn't get along and it wasn't pretty for me <laughs> or my siblings. So like, that's the other piece of it is that, that the world still is pretty, can be pretty tough for, for people who do want to be with a person that they feel like they love or um, they have big differences. And that I know a lot of people can relate to even, even across um, say that you're Catholic and you marry someone who's Jewish, you know, like that's, those are two different worlds. So that's then a whole other <laughs> a whole other thing. But yeah, I, I could talk about all of this for days because it is very fascinating to me. But I also think that we are at a point where we're kind of overcomplicating it instead of just, okay, we'll just say. So how do we make it you're simple? At? Because like when I think about students, because I worked with middle school for such a while, in middle school, I feel like that's the part in life where people are like, I'm trying to figure out who I am as a person. And then you got, oh my gosh, my body is physically changing and I have hormones and things are happy on the inside of me. I thought boys were gross. And now it's like, oh, look at this boy that I thought was just a gross person. Like I have these feelings I can't do anything with. Yeah. And then you have like the, who am I? So if you got like the culture situation happening. It's like, I haven't fit in. Who do I become? Because I feel like whether you're a kid or adult, until you really settle on who you are as a person, you're always going to be in this kind of shape shifting mode. And so with you having this personal experience and being in the education space, how do you use your personal experience to help others, whether that's adults that are colleagues or whether that is our kids that uh, you impact even through your work? I... I feel like much of my passion and purpose continues to consistently be about self-awareness. So as much as I can go on and on about cultural neuroscience, biosocial brains, all that stuff. Great. And it's great to be able to connect the dots from like, you know, kind of a, a creative versus technical academic research lens. Um, but I wouldn't even say creative, but from like an organic kind of human experience, lived story type thing. I think that 
I just, I think that we, we spend our lives trying to fit into a box, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's trying to make a sports team and find our identity in that when you're in elementary, middle, high school. Mm -hmm. Um, Often I find that it's more based, I think still in those age ranges, I think it's still based on what you're involved in. A lot of your identity has to do with what you're involved in or what you are able to have access to. Um, But I think it always goes back to self-awareness. And so for me, I'm finding more and more that I'm meant to show up and ask questions because if I can ask questions and help you understand who you are better, no amount of me sharing my story, no amount of me trying to provide and roads for making a strategic plan or anything. Um, because if a person will go to that length for themselves to even be an observer of themselves, like one of my therapists used to say, be a little observer on your shoulder. Just kind of kind of think of you like a little miniature you going, hmm, what's happening right now? What's going on? <laughs> and I just, I've studied enough research components too to know that in the human experience, we still all often believe, I think one of the most recent studies, it was with a a bunch of executives, like CEOs, CFOs and stuff. And they, they polled them and about, I think 92%, they reported from the different metrics, like, yeah, I believe I'm very self-aware as a leader. And then when they actually use the psychiatric scales, it's kind of similar to like, if you've ever done the IATs from Harvard about race and stuff, uh, gender, they have a bunch of different ones now. Um, but they, yeah, they they found that actually only about 10 to 12% of them were actually self-aware, according to psychological perceptions, understanding of others, communication styles, all of that. Um, so I think my mission is honestly, if I can help people better understand themselves, then I think we can all we can all connect a little bit better often. Um, but the, the thing is, is getting to that point of being okay to explore yourself and examine yourself. Mm. And we're often just running a rat race. And part of that is American culture too. Um, that that's not honored. It's not valued. Uh, there's many, many other countries I've visited where rest is honored and valued. Um, your work is just like a support to you living life. That's what one of my friends told me. I was in Spain for a couple of weeks in for a friend's wedding in September. And um, he said that he he moved from the States a couple of years ago and he has an engineering job there now and moved from North Carolina. He said he gets four months off. Oh, wow. And when we were there, <laughs> Shante's like, OK, let me let me. Investigate. <laughs> um, and. And when we were there, right, like the lifestyle there is different. I've been there before. And you, I mean, you go out to dinner like 10 at night, 11 at night, because in the afternoon, places literally shut down. So you can't, for the for a lot of places, you can't even conduct business or even go shopping at a store, unless like a big mainstream store in a bigger city, between the hours of like one and four. Because that's when you're picking up your kids from school. You're spending time. You're taking a siesta if you want. Um, and there's many countries that practice this, right? Like it's a very, it, it's, it, yeah, they literally said, no, we, even on weeknights, like after dinner, then we might, we might go out dancing until like three or four in the morning 
people really don't open up places until maybe 10, 11 in the morning. You work a few hours, call good. And he said, no, here, work just supports you living your best life. And I, I, I do see that. I see a lot of people awakening that. I think that's why there's so many employee retention issues. So many people didn't want to come back after the pandemic because they're like, whoa, oh, so I can actually be probably more effective doing things from my home and I get quality time with family, which, you know, I also realized a lot of people realized I don't want to be with this person <laughs> or whatever. You saw all that too. Happen, it's like, it's like yeah. a give or take because many of my own friends, they were home and then they went back. And so now they're doing like a hybrid thing because it's like on one hand, it's nice to be like, if I have downtime, I can throw stuff in the washing machine, dry yeah. my clothes, mop yeah. the house, or just take a nap during the day. Because sometimes we don't want to eat like we just we really need right. a nap. It's been right. a long day. Right. Um, so some of them have been doing like hybrid where they're at home or at work. But I also feel like during the pandemic, you had this boom of entrepreneurship where people were like, even if I make less money doing what I'm doing, I am living a better quality life. I'm more fulfilled. Um, and I think that leads into retention issues, especially in education where, and there's two buckets, because I talked to a lot of schools. There's bucket A of like, it was rough. We never really had it right to begin with. Yeah, and bucket yeah. two was like, now these kids have had years and years and years of interrupted education. At what point do we say we have to like put the pedal to the metal? But in the midst of those two polar ends, you have people just burning up and burning out. Yeah. Um, so it's like, I need you to figure out, because that's the other thing. Some people, I'm just going to say it, teaching is not for them. No. And no. they haven't taken, as you've been talking about, figuring out who they are. So because they yep. don't know who they are as a person, they don't yep. really know what their purpose is. Teaching is a job to maintain their life, but it's not a yep. job that fulfills them in their life. And so yep. I think some of your retention issues are those people. But okay. it's like you yep. need them to have that journey. So how do you, especially I know you work with so many adults. How do you push someone to kind of get on that journey when they're just kind of, can you push someone to get on that I journey? don't anymore. I don't anymore. That's the truth. I, I tell us why. Tell us why you don't. Yeah, we're we're very similar in that, Shantae. We can very we're very convicted about our passions, and I think that you know it's like any gift that that you have. It can be a double edged sword, and the reality is, what I even though I still am like that hopeful person. When and I all you always want the best case scenario, especially when you're uh, no matter what you're doing, but external partnership very different than when you're embedded in a school, you're in sure. the thick of things, it is very different. Um, however, I, I started to realize I was still having that same fight that had burnt me out, um, in being in principal and teacher roles and putting in 13, 14 hour days like from from day one, um, experiencing a lot of trauma during those years, not even just related to the workplace, but outside of work in my personal life, like, because of all those things, my coping mechanism will and, and thank God it wasn't something more, although this can also kill. And I did have a major health scare that caused me to resign from my last role. And it was workaholism for me. Not and 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 I one of um one of my favorite teachers um I'm trying to remember their names 
I don't even remember which one it is, but there's, um, I, I follow a lot of different teachers, especially in the spiritual world, but they say, they basically talk about how we're all in the human experience on some level, unless we seek out our own awareness, we seek out our own healing and understanding of who we are during our time on earth. In some level, the human condition is still very addicted to suffering. And so when you talk about that heaviness, I my suffering was working myself into the ground and letting myself go by the wayside because the passion is great. I, I wanted to live wherever I worked and I did. Boy, I moved almost every year of my adult life until four years ago. So, so like that mission and that calling was always there from a teaching perspective for me. But over time, what you realize is you no amount of you doing or saying something, if somebody doesn't want to do it, they don't want to do it. And so the thing that I'm becoming, like I'm finding peace with along the way, because yes, I still have those shocking moments where I go, I can't even believe that I'm hearing someone say this right now when I'm facilitating something. And the other part of that is, okay, but if I stay there, I'm, I'm just condemning and judging. And I'm replicating similar harmful hierarchies of thinking, oh, well, they're over there in this particular part of their journey. I don't know anything about them. So there's, I think, a happy balance to understanding. And that's why now at this point in life, I try to be much more just open, talk as vulnerably as I can when I share. Because what I do find is, first of all, as a facilitator, there's no such thing as just because you say, this is a safe place, that that makes that a safe place. <sighs> That's like saying, oh, I went to a restaurant. The food was like a one on a scale of one to 10, but I just kept saying it was good in hopes that it would be good. It's, and it's not, not like to change it. <laughs> and I appreciate how some people have stopped saying it's a safe space. It's a brave space because you it's, it, you're taking a risk. Because yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been, I've been in so many focus groups, so many little study things, and it's like, what we say in here stays in here. But somewhere along the line, someone that wasn't in that group so somehow knew what I said. So it's like, I, I, I kind of go like this. If I say something publicly, or even if I think I'm saying it privately, I always assume if this was on the front page of the newspaper, yep. then am I still standing on this? Yeah. But it also makes people not show up in their true self because as yeah. humans, we have the needs for self-preservation. Yeah. So, there, and there's some hills I'm not willing to die on. Even if I'm passionate about it, I'm like, okay, I got to keep the lights on. I got got to worry about my livelihood and this is not causing yeah. harm. I yeah. think yeah. my biggest trigger are children. So if children are involved, I'm more than likely to go down the hill. But if yep. it's like grownups and their feelings, I'm like, you know what? I, I got something to say about you, but we just go, you gonna keep it moving. No, must, that's what I've had to do. And I yeah. think a lot of educators can relate to this, Shantae. Many of us, we're very empathic. We're very, we're very uh, like emotionally sensitive people. And I know from a young age, I was that way. I could tell people's energy, even if they didn't say anything. And I'm mm. still that way. And I'm that way when I go into a room and that helps me be a better facilitator. It helped me be a better teacher and principal at times. 
But then the flip side of that is, okay, that can also turn into a bit of saviorism because we're out here going, oh, but we got to, we got to make sure everyone understands that this isn't okay. Anti-black racism isn't okay. And treating children that are LGBTQ this way, blah, 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 whatever the thing is. Right. The reality is we all have different journeys in this life. And just because your journey doesn't look like mine doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're wrong. Now, it might mean that you have um, you do have racism inside of you or you have bad behavior because of it. And those things are hateful and you name those things. It's when you're in a training that sometimes is often a conflation of, oh, you're saying I'm bad or I'm wrong versus no, I asked permission to correct something you said. Right. right. So it's those things too of, I get it. I get why people are sensitive and I am also okay with being that person who a lot of times I have been okay mm. with being that person who, well, okay. Um, but over time that also wears on you too, because you want to see people grow. Um, but again, if a person, it's just like anything, if an addict cannot admit that they need help, then they likely are not going to get it. Not but not by any means of intervention or any number of family members, right? So it's kind of the same thing. It, it, no amount, unless a person recognizes, oh, white supremacy still exists. Our structures in America are, are still inherently very oppressive to many marginalized people groups. Unless somebody actually wants to know that and accept that, or they think that that's not true, well, of yeah. course, you're going to be triggered when somebody says, hey, would you mind if I corrected something you just said because it's a microaggression? <laughs> I mean, like, and then people, just... like, like, they add their own narrative to it because, like, yeah. when anytime I've been in training and I was missing the word oppression, then I get the whole Booker T. Washington, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Oh. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not anti um Booker T. Washington. Um, I even had the opportunity sometime back to um, interview uh, one of his descendants. Mm. Um, but we're not saying that people should just take it and just do nothing. We're not saying like give up. We're not saying that. We're saying that the American experience, that nationality piece is not the same for some people based on these structures. And so we want you to keep trying because there are lazy people of every race, background, nationality. Yes! Thank there, you. Yeah. There is all of that. And so, look, look yeah. there's also this, but I will also concur. And I, I think it was your last episode or maybe you just posted about it. No, I think it was your last episode about you. There are white. No, you wrote about it. There are white people who their disdain is actually out of jealousy of black folks. I'm going to specifically bring it to those matters because again, these issues aren't going anywhere if we don't talk candidly about them. And I'm sorry, that is still front. I'm not sorry. It's still front and center in America. And I, oh, I yeah, I know what you're talking about. I did a just jumping back yeah. into work right now. That is a concern that I'm seeing within myself of like, Wait, wait, wait. So now you're not allocating any like support for DEI work any longer? Like, and I'm over here like, oh, I think I think Civil War has been alive and well still. It might not look like bayonets 200 years ago, but like I, I think that 
that's why I want to keep being candid about anything like that when we talk about. And unfortunately, when you look at the historical context, and this is something I also say candidly, anytime people ask questions, because I am passionate about learning about different histories, but specifically Black American history, because it is predominantly the student populace I have taught. So this is also another reason that I have always been passionate about understanding what is actually the fabric of our country, even though I'm not Black. But you don't need to be. Like, that, right. I mean, there, there's so many parts of American culture. It's because of African peoples who were enslaved and brought here. I, so I, again, that does not, and let me say this for anybody who is white or white passing listening, me saying that, me even saying I am pro-black doesn't do anything to diminish me. It, it doesn't take away the fact that I'm still just seeing Gonzalez, some crazy kid from Northern Indiana. <laughs> like, the other thing because I've done trainings before and I mentioned like, it's important to learn other cultures. So, like at one training I shared transparently, like I've been trying to learn more about uh, Latino history, more about mm -hmm. Asian history, and then more mm -hmm. about indigenous peoples. But mm -hmm. in all those three categories I mentioned, there's so many divisions that are yeah, in there. Yeah, so, yeah. and then I remember participants like, oh, I can, we can't learn everything. And I was just like, <laughs> I've done that too. <laughs> and so I said, you know what? I'm going to die, A, with an unread book list because I'm always reading. But B, I'm going to die not knowing all the things. But it yeah. doesn't mean I don't make the effort to be a lifelong learner because there's yeah. so many things. Yeah. Like, do what you can. And like, when I don't know something, I will say, hey, I don't, I didn't know about that. Like, but people yeah. are even Let afraid to say yeah. that yeah. I don't, like, my knowledge about Amish people came from that. There's a there was a show. There was a show. Um, oh, wait. There's a couple, but it's probably the one from like TLC. Um, yes. No, raising up. No, it wasn't raising Amish. It was. Um, it was. They were like following them, and then it was so. To me, it, it was, was just so, so bad. It was, it was inaccurate. <laughs> no. Right, because it was like clearly. So I hate any reality show that's like. Yo, my mom and dad don't know. I'm like, you being recorded. Like, what, what, what is this? So a lot of it was just, I just felt like it wasn't great. It was made for TV. So it wasn't, and I had to remember, what? what's yeah. the purpose of this? It was for entertainment, not education. So sure. yeah, I was okay with being like, because yes, before I have any guests on the show, I get a working knowledge of things I'm going to talk about. But I also am not afraid to be like, oh, I don't know what that is or where that is or right. what, because I feel like, and you know this as a teacher, it's so powerful when you're with students and you're like, you know what, Mrs. Barnes, I don't know that, you know, let me get back to you. And then mm -hmm. students see like, it's okay to be like, I don't know. And it's a learning process for us all in that it also kind of humanizes like, I'm not the source of all knowledge. I'm not here to no. take my knowledge and cram it down into no. your brain. I'm trying to learn with you, which is why from year to year, even if I change, use some of the same lesson plans, they change based on the students no. in my class, exactly. which kind of circles us all the way back around to what we were talking about, because some of the students that are in classes are third culture kids. And one thing we didn't talk about, which was something that was mentioned on LinkedIn. So we need to talk oh. about this uh, oh. before we wrap up. Uh oh, it's like you're too Latina, you're too black. 
And, oh, and yeah, the reason why I'm mentioning that is because when you're trying to figure out who you are and you have different cultures and backgrounds, you make choices about things, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, because that's what makes you who you are. And so have you ever found yourself in a situation where maybe you're out of school and there is a Latina there? And so she's thinking she's going to have this type of relationship with you, but you're like, well, I'll kind of do this, not that. Or not maybe you. the other way, no. you yeah. met somebody from the Amish Mennonite community that yeah. was having different expectations. And how do you deal with when someone's, because when someone says you're too much, I feel like what the what they didn't say is you need to be less than that. Like, Oh, I've actually had people tell me that verbatim, even as a consultant. I've, I've oh been Lord. told you should teach it this way instead, or you should speak this way instead. Um, I've actually specifically been given that feedback. Um, and here's why I'm smiling about it, because this is also <laughs> part of my own journey too, right? Our own learning journey in life. And one of the things as I've rectified and healed more of just traumas that I had buried for years, different, um, just different things that have happened in my life, but I would just always hand to the plow and be back at it and fill up my, fill up my hours with grading papers and doing the stuff and just going hard in a different direction. Because again, that is actually in my twenties specifically, that's where I found my identity. My identity then was all about, I'm a teacher, I'm an educator, um, I'm going to become an administrator. Like it was wrapped up more in that um, and also being a believer and follower of Christ. Like it was wrapped up more in that um, and it became more of a thing, right? Because like Indianapolis public schools, I was at a few different schools. <laughs> They love putting that little H on the staff list for, we got a Hispanic on our staff. <laughs> like, so then yeah. you also live in that existence where people might perceive you as having a lot of the same privileges maybe as like this white teacher over here, but then they don't even know how to ask you who you are or about your background. So they're making assumptions. One of the first comments I got when I entered the teaching field in Indianapolis you know, I can't really tell who you are or what, like what you are. Um, but you're not quite vanilla. That was one of like, I will, I could tell you on replay, just like any person could probably tell you on replay, wow. whatever their story is or whatever parts of that, the, the things people say. And that um, says so, so much about that person when you are like, you're not that, quite vanilla. Like you really didn't say anything about me. You actually exposed <laughs> things about yourself because like it's, yeah. I saw this TikTok where it's like where a white person asked a person of color and I don't like that term, but whatever. They asked them where are they from? And they're like, oh, I'm from New Jersey, this city, this town. Well, if it's another person of color and they ask, where are you from? The person's like, oh, well, my family came or blah, blah, blah. Yeah, because yeah. they're so used to having experiences with white people where they're like, what country are you from? Instead mm -hmm. of assuming that I'm an American first, mm -hmm. instead of asking the right question to say, what is your heritage? What is your lineage? Mm -hmm. Not where are you from? And so mm -hmm. I just find that like very interesting because mm -hmm. I've had... Come, even when I was younger and my got a perm, um, a whole thing about that. Oh, my parents, my parents must not be my parents because my hair doesn't look like my sister's hair. You must have a different dad. And I'm just like, because I, my hair is straightened now, I, I can't be related. Uh, I have to have like a white parent. 
I mean, in middle school, I had kids that thought I was biracial when my hair got permed because of how it looked. And I'm just like, this wow. is nuts. So did, like, did you go to school? Did you go to school? And I should have asked you, do you pref- do you have a preference, Shantae, of black, African-American, as far as how you refer or identify yourself? Uh, that's a good question. And I get asked. And first of all, I appreciate when people ask this question because people feel like it's a taboo question to ask. And it really is not a taboo question. No. Um, I would say when I was younger, I was like, I'm African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I've been saying more black because kind of like you, I've been trying to. And like you like you said, it's a barrier if you're African-American to go so far back in your history. But yeah. I, I think about like you feel like you're part of a tribe somewhere in Africa, but you don't know which one. So as yeah. a part of me, it's like, I acknowledge that I'm African-American, but I also feel like this is other culture out there that I'm, yeah. that's my lineage that I'm a part of. So yep. sometimes I like the term black better because I feel like that grabs up my African-Americanness, but also snatches in like my family in yeah. Africa that I don't know, like I don't know I'm connected to them. So, but also yeah. I'm, I'm not offended by either one. Um, But I will say um, in closing, like, and you know this, so this is like to the audience. It's like, if you know what a person is, like, for example, I would never introduce Justine as being Hispanic or Latino um, if I was just talking about her because I know that she's Puerto Rican, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I know what she, what she identifies as. And I think a lot of times people like, like when someone says, oh, we got this person of color, I'm like, you're not, you're only talking about me. So I'm, I'm black. I'm not a person. Even like, it, here's a challenge for my audience. Go look at any story about black students and see how many times the reporter goes from black students to, to kids of color. Back and forth in the same oh, article. That's also, what to be about black kids. Yes. In this soapbox, we didn't even go down this rabbit trail. And I know we don't have time, but the final food for thought, how, how about addressing also the elephant of black and brown? Oh, brown is not an ethnicity or a race, and it could encompass literal thousands of different ethnicities in the world. And yeah, it's yeah, just like, what is brown? Because when I right. kicked off uh, Brazen Education in January of last year, I had on Dr. Tipku, who is from India. Mm-hmm. And so she referred to herself as a uh, queer brown woman. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to me um, when I think about her because she says that she's brown and I'm not saying that she's not brown. But then well, right, a lot right. of you say brown, like that could be Latino. But I also have mm-hmm. indigenous people that I know who refer to mm-hmm. themselves as brown. So and I'm like, on the outside, right? Like in my own lineage, that was also like eye opening to be like, oh, I, I have a lot of different indigenous roots. That's awesome. I knew about the Taino, but I didn't know about the Cherokee and a few other. Like, there's also those pieces where, like you said, you start to go, oh, this is why I really do feel connected when I go certain places, you know, geographically. And that it's it's just a story that constantly unfolds if you choose to go into it. Um, I'll end with this. I have a, a dear friend and he always puts it this way. He's like, brown is a state of mind just like a white supremacy mindset is a state of mind. So I'd love to see a day where we we start to shift to more of that language. And when you go into a store, you're literally just matching for skin tone if you're like buying makeup, for example. And it doesn't become, because the reality is black, all shades, white, 
all shades. So, and also, I, like, I just hope we get to that space because I, I don't disagree with that. I think when you look at the mindset piece, that also maybe helps with lingo. If you're talking about these things or you listen to this and you are in organizations, but it takes a little bit of the sting off of, I guess, accusatory language when you're speaking about a type of mindset mm -hmm. um, and the harm that that mindset still perpetuates. But I also think there's a lot of power in people just accepting and naming who they are. <laughs> so, because you well, can't, I can't change it. I mean, you can, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I think on that note, I think it's a good place to wrap up because we kind of have taken the identity journey. Oh, yeah. and it was like, we're going to end there of knowing Thank who you, you are, naming who you are, and walking in that. So, Justine, it's been really great to have you on Brazen Education and to kick I'm off honored. our season for 2023. And and, and listeners, uh, you can follow. How can they follow you? Uh, drop your handles and stuff. Oh. Oh, oh, uh, you can, you can follow me, um, on a multitude of places, but, um, probably LinkedIn, just look up Justine Gonzalez. And then if you want to visit educatoraid.com, we'd, we'd love for you to check out our free resources there. We're, we're, we're doing some rebranding and repositioning, but we've got a lot of cool free stuff. coming. A lot out. of resources. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <Too> many. No. <laughs> We're getting it together. <laughs> but thank Thanks you so, so much. I'm just, I'm just honored to be here, Shantae, always. So thank Thanks. you. You're the hostess with the mostest. <laughs> oh, thank you. You are. <laughs>